Yo, yo, what up, what up? Welcome to the WTF Should I Do With My Life podcast. I am your host, Jacob Sokol. I dropped the yo in there. I don't know if you noticed that. But I am here and I'm stoked. Today we've got a very special guest, Mr. Actually, Dr. Tal Ben Shahar, who is one of the world's leading positive psychologists. He's an amazing man. He wrote a book called Happier Amongst Several Others. I believe the pursuit of perfect and um, some other goodness, but Tal is uh, just super wise and he does a really great job of helping to translate some of the world's leading research in the field of positive psychology and neuroscience and, and just academia and to translate it into a language that's easily accessible and super understandable and actionable. And, you know, I admire that because that's what I like to do also. I like to take this wisdom that's a little bit out there and say, all right, well, how do we, how do we align this with soup being super practical and pragmatic? And today's interview is, uh, is a good one. Um, just a little bit more about Tal. He taught the most popular class at Harvard of all time. I believe that's still accurate. It was when I interviewed him in 2012 for the first time, which you might want to go back and check that interview out after this one if you love this one. Um, but in today's interview, we jump into a slew of goodness. Uh, we talk about why pursuing happiness can actually make you unhappy universal cosmic twisted joke but yeah universal happiness can actually excuse me <laughs> happiness uh, pursuing can actually make you less happy um so we talk about that we talk about the pressure to be happy in today's society and how that can lead to more unhappiness we talk about how to navigate emotions that come up that aren't necessarily comfortable in fact sometimes they feel like so, you know, what do we do? Do we just ignore them? How do we deal with them if we're out at work? Um, how do we navigate uh, some uncomfortable emotions, including taking risks? And so many of us can uh, cling to certainty and want to know exactly how things are going to turn out, whether that's with our careers or our relationships or even our finances. And we're afraid to take risks. And so how do we know what risks are worth taking? And, and how do we navigate um, being in uncertainty? And so Tal you know, helps break down how to do all this. And again, what's so great about Tal's wisdom and his sharing is that it, so much of it comes directly from the evidence-based research that is a result of many hours of intense uh, research that's done. So lots of goodness. Let's jump in, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Tal, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, right on. Well, I'm a big fan of you and your work. We first connected in our previous interview. Hard to believe now. It's been almost four years and so much has uh, has changed personally for me as I've committed to living and embodying so much of the wisdom that that you and I are passionate about. And uh, and I'm excited to jump in today. Um, and I'd, I'd love to start just by kind of setting the groundwork for us to define happiness because so many people say that they want happiness but don't actually have a, a concrete definition or understanding of, of what that actually means. So can you, can you help us to define happiness? Uh, sure. So there are many definitions to happiness. Um, 
the definition that I've been working with uh, recently, and which which I find very useful, um, is a combination of uh, five elements, five components. Uh, they are uh, the spiritual component, the physical, the intellectual, the relational, meaning the interpersonal, and the emotional. And um, if, if you think about it, this is what, what makes up a whole person, you know, the spiritual, the, the, the physical, the intellectual, the relational, and the emotional. And um, you know, I think the word that best captures happiness is whole person well-being, or if we needed one word, whole being. So this is what I've been working with, and, and this is what I'm, uh, um, I'm, I'm researching and, and teaching a lot of, and, and as much as possible, of course, trying to live in this respect, to think about you know, spiritual well-being in terms of uh, a sense of purpose, find, finding meaning in, in, in the things that I do. Uh, the physical well-being, thinking about uh, things like uh, sleep, exercise, nutrition, of course, uh, intellectual well-being, thinking about um, um, stretching uh, myself intellectually, learning new things, being curious, asking questions. Uh, the relational well-being, of course, that's the number one predictor of happiness, healthy uh, relationships. And finally, the emotional well-being, uh, learning how to, to accept and embrace uh, painful emotions and celebrate pleasurable ones. Mm. So it's fascinating because... I believe that most people think about happiness in more of the emotional capacity, more of the I'm experiencing some sense of pleasure or just an overall emotion that they would deem to be positive. And what I'm hearing from you is actually that it's much more about the the well-being or even the health of the individual as a whole. And I think that that's uh, a great distinction for us to to think about, to shift away from the, a temporary feeling of just, okay, I feel excited or I feel good, and a more holistic, uh, integrated, overall healthy um, sense of well-being. Exactly. Because if, if you think about it and you look at the happiest people in the world, uh, they're not exempt from painful emotions. They're not exempt from difficulties and hardships. And... Um, and even people who do experience a lot of pleasurable emotions, who were you know, fortunate in terms of their genetics or in terms of their experiences, um, they would not lead a, a happy, full and fulfilling life in the long term without the other components of, uh, of well-being. Mm. Super cool. And, you know, one of the things that I... I see many of my clients struggle with, and I've definitely struggled with uh, in the past, is that I can I, I believe that we feel almost a pressure to be happy, and that the fact that we're not always happy makes us feel shame for not being happier, or feel like emotions that we experience besides happiness kind of don't... Um, they don't belong or they mean that we're not enough and they somehow affect our sense of self-worth. I was thumbing through uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning earlier today and, and I came across a quote in there where he says, our current mental hygiene philosophy stresses the idea that people ought to be happy, that unhappiness is a symptom of maladjustment. And such a value system might be responsible for the fact that the burden of unavoidable happiness is increased by unhappiness about being unhappy. 
So how can we how can we find some kind of distinction here? We want to be happy, but at the same time, it feels like the pressure to be happy is making us more unhappy. You know, Viktor Frankl wrote this in the uh, late 1940s. Uh, today, the situation is a lot worse than than it was in his day. So today, the pressure to be uh, happy in the sense of experience positive emotions is is even stronger. And what what, what accentuates the problem? is uh, social media. Because what do we mostly see on, on Facebook, for instance? We see people you know, on vacation, laughing, smiling, having an amazing time with their friends and family, um, celebrating life. And yeah. that, that is great. Uh, it's great if we understand it in context. And in, in context means that there are also a lot of painful difficult emotions in the middle. There are also struggles. I mean, the, the happiest of families, the happiest of relationships, there are conflicts. And, and a good thing that there are, are because we, go, we grow through conflicts. Um, so the problem is that today we, we're only getting a partial view of other people's reality. And we, we think it's the whole. And then we compare that partial view, which we think is the whole, to our whole and then we feel inadequate, as if we're doing something wrong. Yeah, so what, what can we do about it? What tools or mindsets or just practices can we put in place to, to deal with this pressure for happiness? Yeah, first of all, reality check. Uh, recognize, understand that a full and fulfilling life is a life that is um, not devoid of painful emotions, and it's a life that is much more than just emotions, be they pleasurable or painful. Um, so, so, so reality check to see what does it mean to lead a, a real life, not a, a fairy tale life, not a, a social media life, a real, not a virtual life, but a real life. That's the first thing. The second thing um, is celebrating the moment and really honoring the here and now. So when we honor the here and now, the the present, and we do not criticize ourselves for feeling this way or that way at at the moment, then um, uh, we live life in a much, much deeper, much deeper way. Why? Because you know, let's say I'm uh, spending time with um, with my son, uh, and I'm not present. You know, I'm, I'm elsewhere. I'm thinking about what we need to do uh, tomorrow, what we did uh, one week ago. Then I will not fully, deeply experience uh, that moment. I will not derive uh, the most benefits. You know, milk that moment for 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 all it's worth. Um. Whereas if I'm present, really present, then I take full advantage uh, of the moment of the experience. So that's when something good's happening. You know, I'm spending quality time with my, with my son. But the same also applies to experiencing uh, painful emotions. You know, so you look at Viktor Frankl when, when he experienced the most painful reality, you know, being, uh, being in a concentration camp or even, even less severe moments, you know, going through uh, anxiety before uh, a lecture, you know, if I think about my life, or uh, a conflict with one's partner when I'm thinking of, you know, everybody's life, you know, who's in a relationship. If I'm able to be present there, 
Um, then um, I experienced the experience fully. And as a result of experiencing it fully, it actually doesn't last as long as it would if I keep on rejecting it or, or trying to run away from it. Uh, so, and, and I'm open myself up to the flow of, of pleasurable emotions. So being in the present, you know, looking at my experience or experiencing my experience as, as, as I'm going through them, um, strengthens pleasurable emotions and it also helps us better deal with painful emotions. It's interesting because, you know, it's one thing to say when things are feeling great, then let's really celebrate that and and be in the present moment. But I think when we're experiencing uncomfortable emotions, that's the last thing that we want to do. In, is be in the present moment. I think our our conditioning, our socialization has trained us to anesthetize ourselves to those feelings, to go drink the wine or watch the TV or numb out somehow. And so t- tell us, you know, because this is going to be, I think, a little bit counterintuitive to how many of us go about processing situations where we feel sadness or nervousness or anxiety. What's the benefit of actually fully going into feeling those emotions and being present with them? And also, how do we, how do we navigate the reality that sometimes it might not be a situation where we feel emotionally safe or that it's appropriate to feel the sadness or whatever is there because we're at work or we're with people that we don't necessarily have a sense of safety and trust with, whether that's our own deal or their deal. Um, maybe you can just speak to, to how that might show up in our life. Yeah, so uh, first and foremost, we need to then recognize and accept the fact that these emotions are going to show up in our, in our lives. You know, I, I always say that there are only two kinds of people who do not experience painful emotions. Uh, the first kind are the psychopaths. The second kind who don't experience painful emotions are dead. And um, most of us are neither psychopath or dead, which is a good thing. So, so, so we need to accept the fact and really embrace the fact that we, um, that we experience painful emotions in, in, here comes the paradox. When we experience these painful emotions fully, when we truly accept and, and embrace them uh, or observe them with what uh, Professor Mark Williams from uh, Oxford calls friendly curiosity, observing them with friendly curiosity, the paradox is that they actually are more likely to, to dissipate And um, this, is, this is easier said than done because our initial reaction when we experience pain is to, to run away from it, to, to avoid it, as you said, to, to numb it. Some people do it through uh, alcohol. Some people do it through uh, uh, avoidance. Um, but when we do that, when we run away, these emotions in the long term, um, they remain, they intensify, as opposed to uh, dissolving, dissipating, disappear, uh, disappearing, um, opening the, uh, the emotional pathways to, to pleasurable emotions in their place. But we need to be, uh, we need to be um, cor- courageous to, to face them uh, 
head on, to experience them fully, you know, to cry if appropriate, to write about them, to talk about them, um, and to fully accept the fact that they are part of, um, of, of, of our life, and it's a good thing that they are. Yeah, there can be a message in the messiness. There can be some wisdom in the emotion when we start to identify, well, well, where does that actually come from? And, and that might not be something that we want to be doing as we're experiencing the emotion. We might want to just let ourselves experience it. But in hindsight, we can actually find some, some goodness in there. One of the big lessons for me, Tal, in life has been this kind of universal cosmic joke of that what I resist persists. And it almost seems like that is the case with the emotion. It's the more that we fight it, uh, the more that it seems to come back. I I can remember being in New York City in the subway in Times Square. I I used to work as an IT consultant and network engineer. And it was a fairly hot day, and I had my business, my business casual clothing on. And I remember being in this, this packed subway, and I, I sweat fairly easily. And it's the, I would notice myself start to sweat, and you know, to pack subway, and noticing all these people around me. And I don't want to look like I'm out of composure. I don't, want to, I don't want to be that sweaty guy on the train. And the more that I would start to obsess about the sweat, the more that I would sweat. And uh, I recently watched a video of yours where you actually uh, mentioned Viktor Frankl's paradoxical intention. And maybe you can just unpack that a little bit and and how we can use that to deal with some of these types of situations. So Viktor Frankl um, really understood the the nature of of emotions and specifically the nature of anxiety. And l- l- let me take your, your example, which is w- which I think most people can relate to in one situation or another, and, and personalize it because I experience it when when lecturing. Uh, so I'm I'm an introvert, you know. I feel um, actually much more comfortable uh, now speaking speaking to you than, than than I feel on stage when there are you know a hundred pairs of eyes uh, looking at me, um, and in the past. I used to get nervous, and uh, I used to start sweating. And of course, when I start sweating, I, I become more self-conscious. And you know, can they see that I'm sweating and nervous? <laughs> it's a downward spiral. What Victor Frankl says is, you know, stop fighting. You know, if it happens, it happens. On the contrary, he says, bring it on even more. So, for example, I would say, what? This is nervous. This is not nervous. I'm not really. I need to be even more nervous. Come on, Tal. You can be more nervous than that. And that does two things. First of all, it brings humor to the situation. But the second thing that it does, it it allows me to be nervous rather than fighting it. And as you said, what would you resist persists rather than resisting it? I'm inviting it in. And then I'm nervous. You know, big deal. So what? All that means is that I'm not a psychopath and not dead. Emotions, and that's a good thing. Um, uh, moreover, you know, when it comes to public speaking, um, there's actually research showing that if the if the audience can relate to you as a as a human being, in other words, if you, you know, if, first of all, if you show that you're you know you've worked hard and and, and invested, you're not uh, you're not taking it lightly, um, and if you then make a mistake. They actually become very, very uh, empathic and sympathetic, and they like you even more. Why? Because they can relate. They don't see your uh, 
know, your Facebook image. They don't see your, your perfect um, facade. They see the real you. And people connect to authenticity. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think there's, uh, especially being in such a, a masculinized world that oftentimes we feel like we need to be perfect or strong and we confuse what those things mean and we put our self-worth and self-esteem on the line and associated with perfection or strength or perceived strength and um, and we think that that's going to make us good enough or bring us a sense of love and connection when it's actually ironic that by showing the parts of ourself that we might deem to be imperfect, the human parts, the vulnerable parts, the real parts, that people actually feel a deeper connection because we don't have that mask that's in the way of, uh, of what it means to be truly human, which is, which is what we all are. Yeah. And you know, there, there, there are many people today who are, who are speaking about the importance of, of being human, of being real, being authentic. I, I think of, uh, Brene Brown, for example, who talks about, uh, vulnerability, uh, and, uh, and, and how important that is. And, you know, of, of course, I think of Viktor Frankl, who talks about the paradoxical intentions and allowing for emotions. And I think about um, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a wonderful, very powerful approach to revolutionary approach to therapy, talking about the importance of really, truly accepting our emotions. And the key there, you know, for people reading or being exposed to these ideas or even you know, listening to us now, is to think about really accepting painful emotions, really accepting their anxiety, really accepting their, their, their depression or sadness. And when I say really, I'm, I'm contrasting it with pseudo-acceptance. Pseudo-acceptance would be, well, I'm accepting my anxiety now so that I don't feel anxious. Mm. Or I'm accepting my sadness so that I no longer feel sad. That's not real acceptance. That acceptance, that's acceptance for the purpose of, 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 of not feeling whatever it is that I'm feeling. True acceptance is really saying, it's okay. Not only is it okay, it's, it's just a sign of me being a human being that I'm experiencing this anxiety or sadness. And when you truly accept, that's when the paradox kicks in. What do you think stops us from truly accepting and staying in the, the pseudo-acceptance? Um, well, first of all, you know, when we feel anxious, it doesn't feel good. When we're sad, we feel sad, you know, by, by definition. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and it feels good to feel good. So, you know, the, our, our natural preference is, is to feel good and, and to try and get away from, uh, from feeling bad. From feeling, from feeling down, sad, anxious. Um, so, in, in, in a way, it's using our, um, um, our cognitive faculty, our, our mind, our, 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 our thoughts to, to calm us down, to tell us, you know, it really is okay that I'm feeling it. It really, really is okay that I'm, that I'm feeling it. Um, but, but in a way, it's, 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 it's shifting away from our, from our nature, which is very much about um, getting away from painful emotions and, and starting to, to experience more pleasurable. Mm. 
Yeah. Well, that that makes me think of you know a lot of the the people that I I hear come to me because they're they're looking for that next chapter in life and they don't really know what that is and there's this this deeper yearning inside to to um, live with a deeper sense of purpose and to go out there and become what they're capable of becoming. And in order to do that, it, it often, pretty much, it's mandatory. In order to do that, we need to take risks. And whether those are risks with our careers or with our relationships or our finances or even with our sense of identity and, and who we are. Um, and it often seems as if many times the reason that that people are stuck is because they put their need for certainty over their needs for growth or contribution or a deeper sense of connection and i think you know from my own experience in the past there'd be there'd be a lot of overthinking and over analyzing and and just trying to trying to live life in my head by going and going and going around to to find the answer um, so what what advice would you have for someone who can you know relate with what i 'm saying and and feels like it 's probably time to go out into uncertainty, but there 's definitely a discomfort uh, in association with doing that mm. so you know first of all, there are individual differences when it comes to risk taking. There are some people who feel very comfortable uh, taking risks in fact, there are people who who would be very uncomfortable without risk they 'd be bored. Mm. Uh, and on the other hand, there are the, you know, the more risk-averse people who, who may know that the right thing to do is to leave their, their, their current workplace and venture elsewhere. But they may be scared and afraid, and, and they may react very strongly to, uh, to the uncertainty that, that, that ensues. So, so the, the question is, what do these people do? What, what do people who are more risk-averse do? And um, um, my recommendation my suggestion is that they don't look at the situation as an all or nothing. Meaning, it's not, you know, you, you burn all the bridges behind you mm. and you just go out into the wilderness. Um, or you don't do anything at all and you remain in, in, you know, in the safe zone. There, there are middle grounds. There are many middle grounds. You know, what, what I often think about, because I must say, you know, I, I, think I fall more toward the risk-averse uh, end of the spectrum. What, what, what I always like to have is some anchor. You know, so if, um, you know, if, if, if I want to leave a, a, a project with which I'm involved and move on to a new project, um, I always have the safety and say, okay, so, you know, I keep a, a day or two to you know, doing what I did before so that, you know, whether it's to provide me with the necessary income uh, if things don't go well uh, or to provide me certain uh, anchor a foothold in the in the safe zone um, now having said that sometimes it's necessary to, to, to just jump now of course it's easier to just jump if I'm responsible you know only for myself you know, if I have a family to feed you know I may not be able to uh, to do that but the point that I'm making here is that it's not an all or nothing it's not that I'm Either I'm living, you know, an adventurous uh, 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 life, or you know, boring. Uh, either uh, you know, taking risks and trying things out, or you know, being in the safe zone. It's not all or nothing. There are many, many middle grounds. Uh, one of the things that I talk about in in my book, Happier, when when people are looking for, um, you know, want to try a different career, for instance. Uh, initially, they can try that career on a part-time basis. 
you know, if I'm in, I'm a, an investment banker and want to venture into teaching, well, you know, why not volunteer an hour or two a week to see if teaching really is um, or does it for me as I, th- as I think it would. Or vice versa, you know, if I'm a teacher and want to go into the, uh, you know, play the markets, then, you know, why not do it in the, in, in the evenings, at least initially, and see how I do, whether I connect to it. Uh, try things, you know, send out your, uh, uh, your, your feelers and, and see how that works. Yeah, and I see that so much where there's this notion of things being either black or white. So either I'm going to fail or I'm going to succeed if I take this risk. And that just puts so much pressure on us to feel like we need to make the perfect decision. And it it, it keeps us paralyzed, especially because oftentimes we uh, associate our our sense of of self-esteem with with this decision. So I need to prove that I'm enough or prove that I'm good enough. And, uh, and that's so much of the power behind, uh, Carol Dweck's work and, and viewing things as an opportunity to get better instead of trying to prove that we are either good or, or not good. Um, so super powerful stuff. Um, one of the things that I, I picked up from the, the sweet paper that you sent me over yesterday in preparation for our, our interview that I found was really fascinating was, uh, it was just one line in there that caught me, and it said, "Those who pursue happiness oftentimes become more lonely, and then that leads to becoming less happy." Uh, again, a weird paradox of us pursuing happiness making us less happy. Can you shed some light on on why that is and how that works? Um, sure. You know, we, we're we're bombarded with uh, with the message that we should pursue happiness and that we need to be happy and that if we're not happy, then again, something's wrong with us. Um, and also happiness for, for most people is, you know, is, is amorphous or, you know, it's, it's about positive emotions. You know, what does it mean to pursue happiness? If we break it down to it, to its components and, and, and translate it into actual action plan, then that's much more, much more attainable, much more realizable. So, for example, if I tell myself, you know, I want to be happy, I'm going to pursue happiness, happiness is important for me, that actually will, will make me less happy. In contrast, if I say to myself, okay, I want to find something that's meaningful to me, I want to experience the full range of human emotions, uh, I'm going to go out for a run uh, three times a week, um, I'm going to um, um, you know, read uh, a book you know, every day for, for, for half an hour. If I do these things, um, that I, I will actually become happier. Because then I'm not concerned about being happy. What I'm concerned about is doing you know, what, what, what is right, mm. doing what, I'm, uh, what will make me happy, not pursuing happiness directly. That's so interesting. So it's, I almost think of the person who's like, I just want to find my soulmate. And they have this, this kind of perception this of their soulmate somewhere out there. And as a result, they're unwilling to you know, go on a date or open up or engage in the process that would lead someone to be able to connect with them deeply. Yeah. And, and what I'm really hearing in, in your work here in what you shared is that it's so much of it is about focusing on the process instead of just the outcome and being specific and being exactly. actionable. Yeah. And I think Jacob, you know, the, the example of, of relationship is perfect here because so many, I mean, we all want love 
helps people want, want love and, and, you know, we say it and we mean it. But w- what does it mean, the context of a relation? When I say, you know, I, I want, you know, you know we, we, we get together with a partner and, and we say, you know, we want to live happily ever after or we want to have, you know, this great love. What does it mean? Well, what it means is let's spend more time together. Uh, let's do this and that together. Let, let's, let's, uh, let's disagree and listen to one another. Um, so w- when it becomes more specific and more concrete, our, our chances are a lot higher than if it's uh, abstract, amorphous, and very general. So I'd really love to encourage everyone who's listening right now to think about that. And what are the goals or dreams or intentions and ambitions that you have that you feel like when you achieve these things that then you'll be happier? And, you know, maybe there's one that comes to mind right now. Um, And really just take a moment now or after the interview, if you want to press pause, you can and, and say, well, how can I make this more specific and then translate that into being more actionable so that it's not this elusive, hopefully one day I'll, I'll find this magical thing, but you, you have the ability to take control and ownership over it and engage fully and deeply in the process, which will deliver the, the result or the feeling um, or build the momentum for it uh, now. Um, so I, I love that, Tal. Anything you want to add on that before we move on and, and wrap up shortly? Yeah, so, so maybe I can tell a short story, and it's a, it's a story that I, I often end my, my lectures and workshops with, and it's, by, um, uh, it's about Peter Drucker. So Peter Drucker, considered the father of modern management studies, a great scholar and practitioner, has worked with uh, thousands and thousands of great leaders and managers around the world. Um, toward the end of his life, so he died recently at the age of 94, uh, he was too weak, too frail to go and give lectures, uh, presentations, and workshops. But he was still, you know, completely lucid and wanted to continue working. And people certainly wanted to work with him. So what he did was he had people come over to his place for the weekend. Uh, so they would come on a Friday and they would leave on a on a Sunday night. And as you can imagine, you know, these were magical weekends, you know, being in the presence of greatness. Um, but here is how we would start every weekend. On Friday, when they came in, you know, these great leaders who came to spend the weekend with them, on Friday, he would say to them, on Monday, when you go back to work, to your quote-unquote real life, um, I don't want you to call me up, he said. I don't want you to call me up and tell me how great this weekend was. Rather, I want you to call me up and tell me what you're doing differently. Mm. Um, why? Because Peter Drucker was, um, you know, was the master of, of bringing about change, individual change, organizational change. He understood that change won't come when they have an aha moment, uh, you know, a, a eureka uh, experience and insight. You know, these are nice to have, but, but they're, they're not the, um, the essence, the foundation or, uh, of change. The, the, the essence is doing things differently. And that means committing to specific uh, changes that you're going to bring about in your relationship with your colleagues or, or, your, or your partner or yourself. It's about uh, concrete, uh, real uh, action items, goals, uh, behavioral changes that, that you will introduce. That's how you bring about real lasting change. 
it's not about this, you know, the great uh, insight. Yeah, that, that could be a start, but ultimately change comes with, um, with, with specific change in action. That's so funny. My last question was going to be, how do we take a epiphany and translate it into lasting change? That's basically the answer yeah. you just gave us. So exactly. So, so make it concrete, you know, make it concrete, uh, break it down. You know, just like you break down you know, happiness into its different components, if you want to attain it, or love into its specific uh, activities, uh, the same with any uh, abstract, large goal or eureka experience of epiphany. Right on. Well, I super appreciate your wisdom and your time. And for everyone who's you know just invested the last half hour in, in listening to me and Tal's conversation, t- take that, take take this from information and and turn it into application. And you know, let's treat this and these interviews as more than just entertainment, but as something that um, that we're going to consciously choose to implement in our life and become the creators of our experience. And so, uh, with that being said, you know, don't don't say that you loved the conversation. L- let us know what behaviors has changed for you, and you can do that by tweeting me at Jacob Sokol. And for Tal, I know Tal has a Facebook page, and I'm sure he'd love to see some of the results that you get from the action that you take on on the Facebook page. Tal, is there any other way that you'd want people to um, engage with you, or any way that they can continue to engage in your work that you'd be in sh- uh, inspired to share? Sure. So I, I have a, a new, relatively new project, which is a Happier TV. That's Happier TV or Happier TV dot com, uh, where I have uh, many uh, lecturettes, uh, interviews, and uh, and exercises, action uh, items that hopefully can can make you happier. Right on. So we'll link to that in the show notes as well, guys. Um, if you go to sensify.com slash happier, we'll link it up there, uh, dot com slash happier, and then you can link over to Tal's work and uh, just see the show notes as a whole. So Tal, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us today. Thank you. All right. So I hope you enjoyed that interview. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And again, remember, how can you make it specific and actionable and concrete? You just invested that time to rock out with us in the interview. And what can you do in order to translate any big idea that you had into lasting change? So I'd love to hear it. You can tweet me at Jacob Sokol. And if you want to link to some of the other resources that we spoke about in today's interview, such as Tal's new project, his Facebook page, um, our first interview that we did, which was a great one, and that was about relationships and just overall happiness, um, you can grab all that by going to sensify.com slash happier, S-E-N-S-O-P-H-Y dot com slash happier. And you can also opt in for our newsletter. We send a newsletter out, I don't know, three times a month, something like that. Depends on how crazy my life is and how much insanity I have to share with the world. And we link to all types of goodness and opportunities that might not make it out of our inner circle and out of our newsletter. So you can jump into the newsletter, lots of goodness in there. And, you know, 
I think we're going to wrap up by me just telling you how much I appreciate you. So thank you for rocking with us. We are deep into this interview and I am honored that you're a part of our tribe and, and soaking up this goodness. And even if we've never exchanged a word before and you're like, who is this crazy guy that I'm listening to right now? And it's the first time you're hearing me. Thank you for allowing me into your consciousness and into your life and hopefully not to get too cheesy here into your heart. So have a great rest of your day and keep in touch. We've got more episodes coming later this week and in the weeks and months and years and hopefully decades ahead. All right. Lots of love. Peace out, my homie.